All right, so uh, here's what I want to do. Paul tells Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy 4, he says, give attention to the public reading of the Scriptures. Uh, and I want to do that. It is right and good for us to publicly read out loud Scriptures. And I say that because I want to read a chunk. So I'm not going to have you stand. We're actually going to read a chapter and a half of Scripture because this is one story. This is one voyage of Paul as he goes from Caesarea all the way uh, to Rome. And I'm going to have them put the map up on the screen. So as you sort of hear these locations, you can look up from your Bible. And I hope you will open your Bibles or your Bible app and follow along here uh, and listen to God's Word uh, as we read. We're going to go from chapter 27, verse 1 to uh, chapter 28, verse 16. All right? Chapter 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius and embarking in a ship of Andromitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Canidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off of Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both south and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the sea wind blew gently, supposing they'd obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the island. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned." And since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. 
When the 14th day had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding, a found, and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down for anchors from the stern and prayed for the day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it and began to eat, and they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves." We were in all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck the remain and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. And after we brought, were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed unusual kindness to us, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had fired, had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and, we, uh, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, I want you to do a little experiment with me. On the count of three, I want you to blink. Okay, I know this is weird. Just bear with me, all right? Ready? One, two, three, blink. That blink, um, on average, took about 120 milliseconds. 
A millisecond is a thousandth of a second, right? So about a tenth of a second is what it takes for you to blink. That's fast, right? That's really fast that your eye does that. Uh, but if you're a Wall Street high-frequency trader, it's not fast enough, okay? Now, hold on here. Bear with me. It's not fast enough. In fact, um, one of the things that high-frequency traders need is a really fast line that will get them from the, the New York Stock Exchange, actually the, the computer center of the New York Stock Exchange, all the way to the computer center at the Chicago Mercantile. And until, till, till, until 2010, the time it took for, for a, a signal to travel up and back, to ping up and back between these two exchanges was 14.65 milliseconds. It was created by Verizon traders, didn't know if they were on it or off it. It was called the gold line because it was about uh, 1.5 milliseconds faster than any other line. It seems ridiculous. Uh, until you understand that fortunes are made and lost on Wall Street by milliseconds. In 2010, some developers, or 2009 actually, some developers realized this and said, here's what we're going to do. We're, gonna, we're going to uh, bury a one and a half inch thick tube and we're going to run it from Chicago all the way to New York and, and we're going to meet up in the middle and the goal is to make that line as straight as possible. It has to be straight. Light has difficulty because inside of that tube was going to be housed 400 optic lines. And so they go to do this, and they, they, have to, they have to bore through mountains and rock. They have to go under rivers. They have to do all this strange thing just to keep the line as perfectly straight as possible, and yet it wasn't possible. What they were trying to avoid was little right-angle turns, slants that didn't need to be there anyway to keep it perfectly straight. And when all was said and done, in 2010, they announced that now the, the, the fastest travel between uh, New York and Chicago and back was 13 milliseconds. They beat Verizon by 1.65 milliseconds. Now, why would they do that? Why would they spend all this money? Because the developers of this line were able to go to all the major trading houses and trade and, 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 and have people lease uh, 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 an up and back line. So two of those lines, they did this 200 times to the tune of $300,000 a month, $3.6 million a year, $10.6 million for a five-year lease, which brought in $2.9 billion. Also, people could front run, get out ahead, and make billions of dollars themselves. And yet, and yet, $2.9 billion couldn't buy them a straight line. So we're told in geometry that the shortest distance between two lines is what? A straight line. If you're on a if you're in a circle or you're on a globe, you know, whatever, then then, then it's a, it's an arc, right? But it's a straight line. And, and I think any of us who are paying attention understand that straight lines in real life are impossible. They work on paper, they don't work in life. I can't get to the bathroom from here by a straight line. I can't go home by a straight line, right? It's impossible. In fact, um, it, it, that doesn't work in, it works in geometry. It doesn't work in life. It doesn't work in our spiritual lives. There are, right, there are twists and turns. There are right angles. There are mountains. There are valleys. There are these things that keep us, seem to conspire against us from having a straight line life. You can't have enough money to buy a straight line life. 
In fact, let's, let me suggest something. It's actually, it's actually the twists and turns of mountains and valley that give life texture, right? That, that give it sort of like meaning and, and, and uh, make it interesting. We could say all that. I mean, who, would, who of us would want to go to a, a, a straight line movie? Boy meets girl, boy falls in love with girl, boy and girl get married. Ten minutes done. And I spent $12 for that, right? What do you want to see? There's the tension. There's the twists, the turns, the mountains, valleys. Then they get together. Oh, yes, there it is. Finally, they're together, right? I mean, have you noticed even like reality TV has to like make up twists and turns? Like why is it that every Chip and Joanna Gaines show has to have the phone call? I'm sorry to tell you, something terrible has happened. You have to spend a thousand more dollars. What will they do? Commercial break, right? We got to manufacture it. Otherwise, it's like whatever. They built a house, right? See, that life doesn't work this way. Life has its twists and turns. Now, I'm saying all this because when we come to chapter 27 and look at the passage we looked at, what do we see? It's not a straight line. This seems like a really simple thing. Paul, get from Caesarea to Rome. And a trip that should have taken six weeks takes over six months. Why? Because there is tempestuous winds. Because there's assassination attempts. Because they're threatened with murder. Because there's a snake bite. All of these things happening. Um, Why is this going on? Why, why is all of this hardship happening here in this, in this chapter and a half? And why, have you thought about this? That was a long passage I just read, right? Luke only has 28 chapters. Luke can't go down to Staples, grab a bunch of paper, reams of paper, get on his computer, and just start typing. He has a limited amount of real estate, and yet Luke decides, I'm going to take up one and a half chapters describing one journey just to get Paul to Rome. Why would he do that? Let me remind you, if we go back to chapter 19, I think it's verse 21, Paul, in that moment, says, I got to get to Rome. Now, what made Paul say that? Was it a quiver in his liver? Was it this impression he'd been given? We don't know. But he said, I got to go. And then, and then Jesus shows up to him in chapter 23 and verse 11 and says, Paul, don't fear. Like, you, you, you must get to Rome. You're going to get there. Christ promised he would go. And then everything from that moment on seems conspired against Paul. Then we get to chapter 27. What happens in chapter 27? I mean, it is one thing after another. See, let me say it this way. If Christ promised this to you, if, if, if Christ promised, hey, you're getting from here to there, what would you expect? I, I, don't, I don't think you would, um, would think I'm going to be, I'm gonna be uh, uh, conspired against to assassinate Uh, there's going to have to be a military escort. I'm going to have to go through three trials. I'm going to have two plus, you know, three, four years in prison. I'm going to have a near-death experience at sea, and I'm going to be bitten by a poisonous snake. I would never think that's a trajectory. That's not efficient. That's not the quickest line. That's not the shortest distance between two points, is it? It's very inefficient. It doesn't make any sense. 
David Gooding, he's a commentator, and he says this, from the moment they boarded the ship to the cold white morning it broke up on the shore of Malta, there was no miracle. No angelic powers conveyed the ship unscathed into port. All the passengers and crew were saved, but only after two weeks and more of agonized suffering in a final, inglorious, hair-raising scramble from the rack through the surf to the shore. Like, what's going on? See, that's not how we expect life to go, is it? Like, look, we we go, God, you're my father. I I expect now that that life is going to be a little easier. I I expect that things will be a little more efficient. I expect that if God's going to make a promise, I'm going to bring you home, whatever, then then, then it ought to be a little shorter line and not so many twists and turns, not so many mountains and valleys. Uh, But that doesn't happen. Um, And so this episode, I think, raises some really troubling, strange questions. Derek Thomas wrote a commentary on this, this book, and he says this, if Paul was God's own appointed apostle and ambassador sent to represent the gospel of God's own son to the highest authority on earth, and if God is the God who created and controls nature, who rules over the surging sea, and when its waves mount up, stills them, then why did, God's not, why did not God's kingly order rule or, or, order the Mediterranean to give his ambassador a smoother passage instead of torturing him for two weeks and then throwing him up like a half-drowned rat on the beach? God, why do you do this? What are you doing? I've told you some of the story about what happened to me when I was in seminary. I'm thinking, okay, I'm a lawyer, and uh, God, you're calling me into ministry. I'm going to go from law to grace, right? Seems like the right move to make. God, you're going to help me, and and we're going to go there, and it's going to be smooth sailing. We'll go through four years. I'll get into a pastorate. I'll be on my way. And I'm in seminary two and a half years. And my boss walks into my office, 9-11 just happened, and he says, Chris, I'm sorry. we got to let you go. I'm without a job. I have, I have two kids, three kids. I have another one on the way. How am I going to provide? How am I going to get through seminary? What am I going to do? God, this is very inconvenient. <laughs> this is not the shortest distance between two points. Why would you do this? See, what, what, what is Luke wanting to show us here? See, why all this real estate, Luke? And I want to suggest to you this, that chapter 27 to 28, verse 16, is, it's not an allegory. This really, there's too much detail in this to call it an allegory. I heard a pastor, preacher one recently say, you know, you know the viper latched onto him and Paul shook it loose. You know what you should do with your, you should shake it loose. Shake your stuff loose, like whatever. That's what you're supposed to do. I don't think so. I do think it's a parable. I think it's a living, real parable of a biblical truth. And that biblical truth is that God providentially rules over everything. It's a parable of providence. See, see, look, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul writes this, God works everything all things according to the counsel of his will. How does that work? Chapter 27, chapter 28. See, 
uh, we say that a picture, uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. So that what Luke is doing is saying, okay, well, I'm going to give you, I'm going to, I'm going to paint for you a picture that would take me thousands and I mean, much more than a chapter and a half for me to explain in theological intricacy, the providence of God. Rather, let me just show you, let me show you what Proverbs 21, 30 means when, when the Bible says no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Let me show you what Romans chapter eight means when it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What does that look like? Chapter 27 and chapter 28. It's the invisible hand of God working in the background to bring about all that he intends to fulfill every single promise. It's Joseph in slavery, isn't it? Joseph captured, taken to slavery, eventually gets promoted, goes to prison, gets promoted to the second in command in all of Egypt and says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, providentially. It's the book of Esther, never mentioning the name of God, and yet in the background, unmistakably is God moving and weaving history. It's the book of Ruth, where in the Hebrew, it literally says, as though tongue-in-cheek, that Ruth chanced, chanced upon Boaz's field. As if to say, there is no way this is chance. God's working. God's moving all things according to his will. So, so let me just point out, in the time we have left together, let me just point out a couple of things from this passage, okay? First of all, I want you to see, Christ kept his promise and Paul reached Rome, didn't he? We just got to Rome today. We've heard about this since chapter 19. We heard about when Jesus promised him. Why did Paul make it to Rome? Because Christ promised he would. That's really the, the, the reason. So, but, but yet every circumstance, did you read it? I mean, I mean, go back through that sometime and notice how much opposition is against Paul. The seas rise up against him. Like snakes come out and bite him. Soldiers want to kill him. They want to let the, you know, the passengers drown or just go ahead and do it themselves. Like shipwreck, death threats, all these things going on. Now, let me ask you something. What would you think if that happened to you? What would you think if you said, you know what? I really prayed about this. I, I made a decision in life to take this job, to live in this neighborhood, to, to marry this person, to, to do the things, to start this business. I prayed about this. I sought wise counsel. The wise counsel all said to me, go. It seemed that everything said, yes, 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 you go. And now I'm pursuing it, and the world feels like it's falling apart. Everything is coming against me. What do you do? See, what would be going on in your head? Some of you would go, this is satanic. This is supernatural opposition. The devil has it out for me. Is that, right? is that the right way to evaluate this? Maybe. Like in Scripture, by the way, in Scripture, the seas are this place of like primeval chaos the seas are this place where under the surface some really, you know, we don't know what's going on. That's the netherworld. This is where sort of demonic things happen, right? So it, it wouldn't, certainly that's an Old Testament metaphor and motif that you see all the time. So, so it could be that what, what we're supposed to see in Luke is that Paul isn't so much fighting the natural world as he is fighting the supernatural world, right? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, against principalities and powers. Maybe that's exactly what's happening, 
but maybe not. And the reason I say that is this. And again, I, I don't mind where you land on this. I'm going to give you two of these choices. I'm going to tell you, I think this requires great wisdom because I want you to notice something. First of all, Jesus comes on the stage in the New Testament. We're now New Testament Christians on the other side of that. And we look at Jesus, and what does Jesus do? He walks on water. He calms storms. He doesn't look and say, man, this is a supernatural realm, that, but he, he overtakes anything. He, over, he, he shows his authority over nature. He shows his authority over supernature, if I can say it that way, in every way. Paul's a disciple of Jesus. And I want you to notice, you did not read anywhere in these several verses, anywhere that Paul or Luke attributes supernatural opposition. Now, now, maybe it is. How do I know? It takes discernment, doesn't it? It takes wisdom. We don't count everything as supernatural and demonic, and we don't say everything is natural. Christians, we live in that sort of muddy middle of going, Lord, help us to have discernment about what this is. It might be supernatural opposition. It might also just be God saying... I want to bring some of these hardships into your life because at the end of this, I want you to see I'm in control. See, either way you go, if you fork out in the supernatural direction or you fork out and know this is like, this is just the, the, the natural inclination of a fallen world, either way, God's still in control. God providentially ruling and reigning. So Paul makes it to Rome. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 8, you're going to make it to the ends of the earth. And they do. He tells Paul in chapter 23, verse 11, you're going to make it to Rome. And he does. Did Paul make it to Rome? Yes. Was it a straight line? No. Was God totally in control through every twist, turn, mountain, and valley? Absolutely. And it's the same in your life. Okay, that's the first thing. But notice this second thing. It's pretty obvious. You saw this. Christ kept his promise and Paul was a prisoner. This is the ironic twist. This is not what we have expected, right? That Paul shows up in Rome and this is how he gets there. Christ never promised Paul. He never said, Paul, here's the deal. I'm going to give you a quick, efficient, shortest distance between two points, hassle-free journey that's going to take you from here to there. Rather, one thing after another. Jesus just promised, you're getting there. Bank on it. This is happening. Christian, here's one thing I can tell you. Jesus has promised you a home in heaven. He has promised you an eternity with him. He has promised you that one day he's going to come and take you and receive you to himself. But he never said that in the meantime it's a straight line. There's going to be hardship of various degrees, suffering of varying degrees, twists and turns of varying degrees in our lives. Paul gets there. But, but Jesus didn't just say, by the way, Paul, you're going to get to Rome. That's all I'm going to promise. No, he said, you're going to testify before Caesar. 
I'm going to get you to Rome and you're going to open your mouth on my behalf. Just as you witnessed to me in Jerusalem, you're going to witness to me in Rome, Paul. You keep doing what you're doing. So, so now you look and go, okay, if Paul's locked up like a criminal, how does this serve God's purpose? How does this help? Doesn't it? I said this a couple weeks ago. Isn't church planting Paul better than prison chained up Paul? Isn't that better for the gospel? And I think the answer we're forced into is apparently not. So let me, let me show you three ways that I think this is actually better. It's better for Paul and it's better for you and me. So, so let's look at these. First of all, through Paul's suffering, Paul's testimony was expanded. Okay, so you're, you keep reading the book of Acts. Okay, and what are you, you going to find out? People start coming to Paul. Just like, like they start coming. Jews start coming to him. He starts teaching. People are coming to Christ. Um, in, in fact, I love this. If you go to Philippians, you don't have to turn there with me, but in Philippians chapter 4, this is always my favorite. I love every time I, I, uh, I, I several years ago, I memorized the book of Philippians and I, I, I kind of recite it to myself as I jog or I run. I try to remember scripture. So I, I remember that as I was getting to the end of Philippians, I I, I read, I, I had this scripture in my mind, and I'm running, and he says this, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household, of Caesar's household. I got to go into the inside they heard the testimony and, and unbeknownst to everybody, people inside the most powerful place in the known world are hearing and receiving the gospel. But more than that, probably, and I say probably, so let me, let me state this humbly, Paul very likely, in fact, no, let me say this, I think he for sure stood before Caesar. Here's why I say that. Scripture doesn't record it which is amazing. But if Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you'll be my witness to the ends of the earth, and it happened. And he said in chapter 23, verse 11, you're going to go to Rome, and he, it had happened. And he, said in chapter 20, and he said in chapter 27, you must stand before Caesar. Then what's the logical implication? He stood before the most powerful man in the world and testified to Jesus. Why does God have Paul in prison? So he could stand before Caesar. See, do you understand this, Christian? Do you understand that one of the things God is doing in the midst of your suffering, why does God have you in that hospital? Why does God have you in that job? Why are you in that marriage? Why do you have them as a next-door neighbor? We could go on and on, right? Why? To expand the testimony about Jesus in the midst of your suffering, perhaps. Paul's testimony was expanded. But second of all, look at this. Paul's, Paul's testimony uh, was, was enriched. 
Because here's the thing. It's tempting to see his imprisonment as wasted time, right? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and we said it wasn't. And the reason it wasn't is we know that it was during this time in prison that Paul wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. I mean, he wrote some of the greatest words. God slowed Paul down in order to lift Christ up. Paul, I want you to see some things about me that you will not see. In fact, go and read more than anywhere else in Scripture, in all the New Testament. Read Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It'll take you 30 minutes. And I want you to notice something. You will see more than anywhere else in Paul's letters, Christ as supreme, Christ as sovereign, Christ as the undisputed, the unrivaled Lord of the universe. And that all came from prison. Where does Paul see the supremacy, the sovereignty, the sufficiency of Christ more than anywhere else? It's not in his riches. It's not when things are going well. It's in the midst of his suffering. But, but lastly, Paul's testimony was authenticated. Now, here's what I mean. How do you know that someone's belief, faith, let's say that, is real? What authenticates somebody's beliefs more than anything? And I want to submit to you, it's when they're willing to suffer for them. There's a great story about this. Some of you probably read Patrick Lencioni's leadership guru, uh, his book, The Advantage. In The Advantage, he talks about how we ought to, you know, corporations ought to have like a, have, they ought to take some time to find out what their core values are. And he says, the way you know that a value is a core value, a core belief, is that you're willing to suffer for them. I like how he says this. You're willing to suffer for them. So he uses this example. Some of you know, um, of course, Southwest Airlines and Herb Kellerman, who kind of uh, was the one who really brought it to, to where it is today. And Herb Kellerman's story told that uh, it's kind of gone down in Southwest folklore that um, Southwest Airlines has as one of their core values, work should be fun. I think it's something like that, like work or humor or something like that. So you've been on a Southwest Airlines flight before. I'm, I'm assume, I'll, I'll assume a lot of you have. And, and, and you'll notice that a lot of times during the safety time or whatever, they will, they will try and make it entertaining, make it funny. I was on a Southwest Airlines one time when they were landing the plane. And as they landed it, the airline pilot came over the intercom and went, whoa, big fella. Right? So they try to make things fun. Well, somebody got offended that during the safety presentation, the flight attendant was, was making it fun and funny. And, th- and she wrote to Herb Kellerman himself and said, I don't think this is funny. I don't think she should be doing that. I think this should be a very serious time. Lives are at risk kind of thing, right? Most corporate CEOs would hear that and go, you know, ma'am, you're right. Here's a free ticket. We're sorry. We'll talk to that employee. We'll do something about it. Promise you, really hope that never happens again and hope you'll continue to fly Southwest Airlines. Herb Kellerman didn't do that. He just wrote her a three-word response. You'll be missed. (laughs) Now, you see what I mean? Here's a guy that says, I'm okay losing business because this is a real value. I'm okay suffering for what I believe because it's real to me. Nothing says to the world your faith is real more than your willingness to suffer for what you say you believe. And here's Paul. What, What gives you the moral authority? Can I say it this way? to say to other people, live lives worthy of the gospel. 
to say to other people, rejoice in the Lord always. To say to other people, suffer as a good soldier for Christ. You know what gives you that moral authority? You've suffered. You can say rejoice always because you're in prison rejoicing in the Lord. What gives you, what gives somebody who can stand up and say things like don't give up and Christ is worth it and say things like I consider the sufferings of this present world not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to the sons of God. Somebody who's really suffered. There's no suffering in this world that can take me out. Do you see this? This is Paul. See, Christian, are we willing to suffer? Are we willing to take hardship and not think this is God punishing me, but perhaps this is God using me to expand, to enrich, to authenticate my testimony about Jesus? People don't pay attention to us when all of our lives are great and we're living the perfect suburban life and things are happy because everybody's that way. But when you suffer and they see you holding on to Jesus, that's when it becomes like, wow, this is real. So, okay, remember I told you at the very beginning, one of the things, one of the questions Luke is trying to answer is this. How in the world? Theophilus is asking Luke, Luke, please explain this. How did this, this backwater religion with Jesus and 12 guys, he loses one, how did, how did that expand to take over the known world and make it to the end of the earth? How did that happen? And if we were to go back and tease that out in the book of Acts, we'd say first and foremost because Christ promised it would happen. Because the gospel is the power of God and salvation for all who believe to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Because God worked all things according to the counsel of his will. Because men and women transformed by the gospel went out with that same gospel and gossiped it to the world. I was reading a book. I'm reading a book right now. Right, um, very interesting book called Madness of Crowds. But, but in there, it talks about what uh, what, what, what caused, what caused same-sex marriage, homosexuality, the kind, of, the kind of sexual issues that are in our culture today, what caused them to become so mainstream in a very, very short amount of time? And if you trace it through, it's because people say things like this. I know someone who's homosexual. Could they say of you, I know someone who's a Christian. I know them. They're not bigots. They're not angry at the world. They're loving, caring, God-fearing, right? This kind of thing. They love Jesus. This is how it spread. And it spread because People like Paul were willing to suffer for the sake of Christ because he's worth it. That's it. Let me close with this. Derek Thomas says this. No special promises are given to Christians that they will be spared such life-threatening episodes. Christians of the highest caliber 
may find themselves in circumstances in which life itself is threatened and faith will be necessary. Not faith we will live, but faith that even if we should die, God will not abandon us. Christian, that's your story. Your life will not be the shortest distance between two points. It'll have twists and turns, mountain valleys, hardship, suffering, blessing, wonderful, all these things. And Jesus Christ will never leave you or forsake you. And God is providentially ruling over all of it, working all things according to the counsel of his will. Let's pray. Father, I love that I get to pray to a God that knows the beginning from the end. I love that we're not praying to a wooden idol who cannot move, who cannot feel or see or touch. We are praying to the God of the universe who works all things, the counsel, according to the counsel of his will. And we come to you now in the name of your son, Jesus. And we pray, God, we pray that you would cause these things that many of us in this room would say we believe to be things we really believe. And that as you, you test our faith, you refine it through the fires of tribulation and suffering, that what would come out would just be gold. And God, I know there's people in here that are suffering. I know there's people that go, man, what? I thought I was following the will of God. I sought counsel. I listened to scripture. I did everything I thought I was supposed to do. And here, look at my life. It seems like the universe is arrayed against me. And Father, I pray, encourage their hearts today that, Lord, you have not abandoned them. You are not walking away from them. God, you're walking them through this. And I pray that through their suffering, their testimony might be expanded, enriched, and authenticated. And I pray, God, for those who are in this room today that have not placed their faith or trust their hope in Jesus Christ, that, God, today might be a day where they would turn from their sin, turn in faith to Jesus, place their faith in you, and begin walking in obedience to you, Jesus. You didn't promise you'd be with everybody. You promised you'd be with your people, those who have come into union with you through faith. And so I pray, God, perhaps there's people in this room come here hurt, burned out, suffering, addicted, whatever the case may be, God. And today's a day when you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can begin to break chains in their lives as they put their hope, their faith in you. Do that today, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. We'll listen.